Just do good and watch how people criticize. It's a sad state, but it's a reality. It's a sad truth that many of us have experienced, and the reality is this. When people act like that, they don't want any change in their perceived hierarchy. And that's a big deal. Notice I use the word perceived hierarchy because there is only but one in control. There is only one authority. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We would like to welcome you to Getting in the Word with Pastor Stuart Guthrie. Pastor Stewart is the teaching pastor of Family Bible Fellowship in Early Branch, South Carolina, and he has been teaching through a series on the book of John. We hope that you will join us as we begin Getting in the Word. Here is Pastor Stewart. I believe that we, as we live our lives as a nation, a fast-growing culture that in many ways is failing, um, as they desire to, there's a front row right here. You're welcome to say the whole thing's open. Um, as we begin to grow and as we begin to see the culture transform, um, we see the problem of popularity. We, in our culture, want to post to Facebook so that we can become popular. And maybe we post so that we can obtain many of these friend requests so that we can gain our numbers and cause our laughs and our excitement of these emojis that we post in our culture. And many of the old folks are looking at me going, what does that mean? (laughs) But sometimes popularity causes this. Um, It's not always what it's made out to be. The reality is, is that there are some people out there Maybe one of us sitting here this morning that needs popularity, that feeds on popularity, that desires popularity. And deep down inside, all they do, all that they accomplish, all of the work that they want to gain and the ministries in which they have, the friendships are all for the purpose of gaining some sense of value. The problem of popularity. Today as we dive again into John chapter 3, 22 to 36, I want us to consider three points, three observations uh, from our text. These three things will, I believe, encourage us remind us or challenge us as believers and also unbelievers, those that have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and those that have yet to take that step of faith. The good, the bad, and the ugly, so to speak. So the first observation I want to bring to light from our text this morning is first we see the confrontation. Secondly, I want us to see the clarification. And thirdly, I want us to see the condemnation. 
So let's begin by looking at our first point. We see the confrontation. One of the things that we will see today is that when men to desire to be popular, to gain attention to themselves, we can quickly lose sight of what is most important in life. And I say that's what's happened here in the text. Starting in 22, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time in baptizing. Jesus had just finished, if you remember from last week, meeting with a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Christ revealed to him something amazing that unless he was born again, unless one is born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Meaning that one must be born from above. Salvation is of the Lord. He is the only way unto salvation. And Jesus made that very clear through his dialogue with Nicodemus. After these things, and all of that that preceded that, we find Jesus coming into the land of Judea with his disciples. And it tells us that he's spending time with them. Jesus is there. He's spending time with them. He's doing something that I believe we should all be a part of in the Christian life, in light of discipleship, and that is to invest in other people's lives. The text says that he was spending time with his disciples. Time is a much valuable commodity. We don't have lots of time. There is really no guarantee that you will be giving any more time. The Lord may pull my card. He may pull your card at any minute and you will step right into eternity. I just ate dinner Friday with a friend, him and his wife and my wife, double dated. And he began to tell me how he lost his sister and his brother-in-law in an accident unexpectedly. We're not guaranteed any time beyond what we have been given at this moment in which God gives us air and oxygen in our lungs to speak. So, when we do spend the time that we have, I want to ask a simple question. Do you spend time with others? Do you invest into their lives? Teaching, memorizing scripture, praying and showing them by way of example. And as I look across this room, I know many of you do. I know that many of you are discipling, you're investing, and you, you, you have children whom you are pouring into, right? All that's part of discipleship. Jesus, we are told, was there spending time with them and baptizing. This is a great picture of discipleship. Notice also that he says that he was baptizing. Now, at first glance, it may seem interesting that Jesus is baptizing, right? I mean, to me, that's like 
pretty awesome that Christ is here on the scene with his disciples spending time and it says that he is baptizing. You have Christ who is going to die and on a cross and be buried and three days later rise again from the grave, the very image of what baptism represents. And here Christ is a part of it. Last week we noted that baptism doesn't save a soul, but it's done as a public confession. It's an outward profession of an inward change. Right? It's, a, it's an act that we do after salvation. And here Christ is being a part of this very activity. But we need to explain something here because as we read through our text and we continue into chapter 4, we notice a small detail. It's an important one. And that was that Jesus wasn't personally baptizing, but encouraging, it sounds like, his followers to do so. It said in John 4, 1-2, Therefore, when the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, listen to what he says, verse 2, Although Jesus himself was not baptizing. Why is this important? But his disciples were baptizing. The fact is, Jesus was teaching spending time with these disciples, encouraging, and he was leading with hands-on experience, showing them and being a part of it and watching them and instructing them. This is a great image of discipleship. I wonder how much time we spend investing into the lives of people. Uh, you may have seen me limping as I was coming up here because yesterday we had 14 uh, folks from Family Bible Fellowship that went and played airsoft with the young men. And uh, when I hit 40, all things begin to fall apart. And uh, I say that to say this. I wasn't anywhere close to being done with my sermon. And I had two options. I could go invest my time into people or I could plug into that office and prepare my sermon. And so I decided that an opportunity to invest into people, I would take it. And so I went and we got shot and we shot up and now I'm hurting, my back's hurting, my legs are sore. But the reality is, is it's important to spend time with people. There are so many things in this life that attack our time. But here Jesus didn't miss the opportunity. Rather, he is spending time with his disciples. And so the text continues with the fact that not only were Jesus and his disciples baptizing, but as we approach verse 23, we see it says John also was baptizing in Anan and, and near Salem because there was much water there and the people were coming and were being baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. John is being faithful and the work that he has been called to do, he's baptizing people and they are still coming. And he is with his disciples like Jesus was. Now there would come a time in which he would be limited. He would be unable to 
baptized because the text pre-assumes that once he is thrown into prison that maybe all of the baptism stops. This will prove very important as we get later into the verse. So John has a following here. And it says in Anan near Salam, Salem, that would be if you had the Sea of Galilee up north and the Dead Sea down south and the River Jordan run between, it would be about three quarters of the way up the Jordan below the Sea of Galilee if you really want to know where this place is. Now, while the location, listen, isn't transformational, but more informational, it pointed to the fact that much water was there to do the work of baptism. Okay? Now, I can go into the theological idea that baptism is through immersion. There must be plenty of water. The the Greek word baptizo means to immerse. It was a Greek term that was used to dip and to submerge a cloth into a dye. And when we are baptized, we believe in baptism by immersion, completely putting them under the water, right? Baptizing with plenty of water. The point like he has from the beginning, is to point people to Jesus, whom now is on the scene in Judea. And so Jesus is working, John is working, and they're both drawing crowds to themselves. When the text says in verse 25, Therefore arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Now, we're not 100% sure of what took place within this conversation. But we do know what the text says and what it doesn't say. And what it does say is that they were talking about purification with a Jew. And we learned that in a culture, washing and purification was a big deal, remember? In John, when Jesus turned the water to wine, there were all those clay pots full of water, right? Some of them full. He said, fill them to the brim. But they were there for the purification of washing. It was the legalistic ideal of how to be purified and clean. But this is what they're discussing. But whatever they're discussing, and all of the details that aren't there, it seems something to upset them. But something that might slip right through the cracks that you may read and not notice from our English translation is the Greek word which we translate discussion. Right? Therefore, there arose a discussion. Now, this Greek word, zetesis, means the engagement, listen, in a controversial discussion. It it meant a debate. It meant an argument. So, so there was an argument that arose among these disciples along with this Jew as they discussed purification. And so now we begin to see the main point here, number one, as we see the confrontation. Up to this point, there's been no confrontation. John is working, Jesus is working, but something has changed. And what is really interesting is to see that it's not John who has the problem. But rather it's his followers, it's his disciples. 
the text continues after the discussion with the Jews, which led me to think that which they talked about and got so upset had to do maybe with something to do with Jesus's baptism versus John's baptism. Maybe they felt like Jesus's baptism uh, nullified John's baptism. Who knows? It's all speculation. But the text says, after that argument, they came to John. And they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testified, kind of gives a, a rebuke in the Greek, whom you testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Listen, they're angry. They're frustrated. They're arguing among themselves because now people are not only coming to John, but rather the text says they are all going to Jesus. Listen, isn't this the problem of popularity? Because, listen, given enough time, given enough space, that which is popular, he or she that is popular, will one day no longer be that popular. Popularity wears off. These disciples are all up in arms as the people that once flooded John's ministry has made a switch and is now attending Jesus. Can I say something this morning that I believe we must understand as men, women of faith? Getting upset at the success of someone else is a sure sign of pride, and a lack of trust. It's being faithless. First off, Jesus is busy. He doesn't have time to worry about who's going to John, does he? It, no, he's busy discipling his disciples, watching and participating in their baptisms. He doesn't have time to worry about what's happening near Salem. Because he's too busy doing the work that God has him to do. Don't get caught up in the popularity contest. And we especially have to be careful as a growing body. Because if we're not careful, we'll try to participate in this popularity contest. And that is not what pleases God. Some this morning need to stop. Stop begrudging the success of others and realize that God is in control. These men have lost sight of all that which John has taught them. His purpose and his priority. Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you've testified... This is the man that they have the confrontation with. The one, Jesus Christ, whom John has already revealed and testified about to his followers, and now they are the ones who have a problem. It's so easy, isn't it? it it's a sad truth that many of us have experienced firsthand. Just lose 40 pounds, 50 pounds, and listen to the critics. 
Right? Why would we criticize somebody that's done so good? Make a living that's really good and watch how people criticize. Oh, that rich man, he's got all the money. Right? Just do good and watch how people criticize. It's a sad state, but it's a reality. It's a sad truth that many of us have experienced, and the reality is this. When people act like that, they don't want any change in their perceived hierarchy. And that's a big deal. Notice I use the word perceived hierarchy because there is only but one in control. There is only one authority. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he has established the authority of the church and different items like that. As fathers, you're the leaders of your home. But the reality is, is there is but one who is sovereign over every aspect of our lives, every circumstance in which we find ourselves, every gift given that's given from above is of God. And we have to make sure that we don't, like them, worry about our perceived hierarchy. Because if you do better than them, in their minds, this means they must go down the totem pole. It said that John was baptizing because he had not yet been put into prison. That's, that, that's an interesting statement. Because here, John didn't go down the totem pole. He was faithful in doing what God had called him to do until God took him out of that place. And listen, no matter where you are in your walk and how God has either exalted you or brought you down, you still have a job to do, and that is to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. And John is faithful. And when we do those things, we act like we are being prideful. And we are acting in charge. I can think of a church that's close by that's dying and we've offered help as the body of Christ and they've rejected you want to know why because they're afraid we're going to take control isn't that sad that the body of Christ would dwindle down to next to nothing because they have power paralysis. Meaning they would rather hold on to power so much so that they would watch the body of Christ dwindle. Oh, it's sad that the, the pride that has dwelt in the church today. It's a sad situation. This ministry of Jesus and his followers is messing with their status quo. Getting in the way of their followings. Isn't this just like ministry? You know, as I look across this room, I I notice many of you that have come from different churches. When we started, there was only a few people. I mean, if a visitor comes in here today and they see, well, this room's full and that room's full. Listen, there was only four people when we started, right? And so as I look across this room, I see different churches that have, have, have now become a part of this congregation and become members of Family Bible Fellowship. And there are some that are up in arms about it. 
And I can hear it now, Pastor, all our people are going over there. <laughs> right? Think about this is This is reality. This is a real issue. Did you notice in the text when he says, Rabbi, he was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you've testified. Behold, he is baptizing and, and I capitalize, all are coming to him. You see, that's what pride will do. It will cause you to twist. It will cause you to add. It will cause you to manipulate, to make the situation more than what it really is. It's the problem of popularity. It's pride, not humility. And if I can be honest with you for just a moment, if you were following God and you are accomplishing His will in your life and you are seeking the Lord in your walk and whatever it is He is calling you to do and being wherever it is He's calling you to be, you may just end up somewhere different than here. That's a reality whether it be this church or another church, whatever it might be. This confrontation was driven by greed and positional desire. Have you lately had any confrontation about positional desires? Have you been the one that didn't want any change in your perceived hierarchy? We have to be careful. It was a struggle for them, and it can be a struggle for us. There is but one in control. And if God draws you to this church, then let no man stop you. We don't follow men. We can't. We can't follow men. You go where God draws you. And if He draws you to another church, you go. And when you go... You serve well the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we love you. We don't want you to go anywhere. But listen, we don't own you. I don't own you. I didn't pay for you. Jesus Christ paid for you. You were owned by the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I will build my church. I will build my church. It's not my job. Don't fall into a confrontation with men about position, but rather trust God. You be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ because the same Holy Spirit that indwells me is the same Holy Spirit that if you've trusted in Jesus Christ indwells you. We see the confrontation. Secondly, we see the clarification. I find it interesting that in these men's struggles, John doesn't have this issue. It was the followers that had the issue, not John. And so John is going to begin to clarify some of these misconceptions. And I love this, this guy's answer. It's, it's awesome. He says in verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from above, from heaven. I, I hope that I can respond like this today and into my future. 
He's saying this, if Jesus is drawing all the people from around the world to Christ, he isn't doing it on his own. Rather, God is the success behind it. It's from God. Listen, this church is not growing and thriving because you got an excellent pastor. It's because of God. God had something that he wanted to do here. And I believe it came out of the seven years of faithful men praying that God would plant a thriving and active church in this community. God doesn't need me. But he's blessing. And he gets all the glory. Every ounce of it. These people aren't going away from John to Jesus because he's putting on some show but rather it's because it's given him from above. John keeps on and keeps on making this point very clear as we proceed through the text, reminding these disciples in verse 28, you yourselves are my witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. John has made it very clear that he isn't Jesus. He doesn't want to play the role of Jesus. He doesn't want the authority of Christ, but that he is simply called to make clear the way of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now on the scene with his disciples, fellowshipping and baptizing in Judea, while here he is doing the same in Salem. As these people approach him and say, they are going to Jesus, John is saying, good. That's the purpose. That's the objective. He's made it very clear. But rather, he is there to go ahead and to clear this way. I think it's one of the reasons that the Scripture speaks so highly of John. A matter of fact, in Luke 7, 28, we find Jesus saying this of John. In verse 28, he says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Let that sink in for a minute while I take a glass of water here. Let that sink in for a minute. There is no one born of woman greater than this man, the Baptist. If you want to think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think, just remember that he spoke of John here, not you or me. Why? Why is John... So, wonderful, great. I believe because he's a humble man. And he's not prideful. He isn't seeking positional gain. He doesn't believe he's got some kind of positional hierarchy above everybody else. As a matter of fact, he didn't dress with a sharp tie. And he didn't eat and fatten steaks. He was a little awkward wasn't he? He doesn't think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And to be honest, maybe the people who followed him, maybe they thought more of John than what John thought of himself. And if we're not careful, we too will look to man rather than Christ. He is nothing compared to Christ. And he knows that and he admits that and he makes it clear. And in verse 29 he says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, 
who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. What is he talking about? It's a parable. As I studied it, I love this parable now because I understand it. This verse is a parable that explains John the Baptist's understanding of his own role. The friend who joins the bridegroom, the ancient equivalent of a modern-day best man, is the one whom organized the details and presided over a Judean wedding. And this best man or friend of the bridegroom found his greatest joy in watching the ceremony proceed without problem and knowing that the groom and his bridegroom had been united together. John is excited. His joy is full. His joy is full. He's just a friend. He's just the best man in their wedding. He's just a servant working and serving the bridegroom. And John is full of joy because Jesus is now united with his bride. He's humble. And we too must be humble. Can I ask you an honest question this morning that only God and you can get in there and figure that out is are you a humble person or are you a prideful person? Do you want to receive the glory? Do you want to give God the glory? That's an important question because many times we want the glory. And I'm not going to stand up here and say that ain't never me. Because that ain't true. Sometimes I want the glory. Right? I want you to know how good I am. Right? But that would not be humility. That would be pride. And God would have his way in my life. And if you ever see me walking a rod, prideful, thinking I'm something greater than I am, you need to tell me you're out of line, brother. And if I see that in your life, I want you to know I love you enough that I'll tell you what you're doing is prideful. And you're seeking glory for yourself. You're trying to build your own little kingdom. Would you be willing to rejoice in the success of others? You see, I've been on the other side of a growing and thriving church. And I know what it's like to be in a dead church where it's not growing. And I'm watching every church around me thriving and growing. It's very tough. God just calls us to be faithful, doesn't he? God calls us to be faithful. Will you humble yourself and realize that God is the giver of all good things because John did? a matter of fact, he continues to clarify any confusion that was on the hearts of these men. And still, even today, is clarified in the confusion on our part. And when we read the heart of John, when we come to what I consider the centrality of all of these verses that we're coming to today, we come to verse 30, and here is the verse we see. He says in verse 30, He must increase, speaking of Jesus, and I must decrease. What a humble statement. Jesus must continue to grow 
and gain followers, while I, John, must continue to diminish. There is a time to step up and there is a time to step down. And when you step down, listen, it doesn't mean you have less value. It shows your humility and your, who your trust is in. And that's what John did. He, here he's, Christ must increase and I must decrease, but we know the man was faithful even till when he was in, put in prison. That's, that's amazing. Because the first thing we do when we realize that someone else is being more important than us, we want to give up and quit, don't we? Well, if I can't do this, and I just might as well throw in the towel. That's not the heart that God wants. There may come a time in your life that you need to step down and let someone else step in because it's time. John says now is that time for him. Because 31, he who comes from above is above all. And who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. John knows and he understands his place and he is clarifying this matter in full to these folks. He leaves no room for escape. That nothing, he has nothing in his life but being a man. And Jesus, oh, he's Lord of all. Christ is from above. He is God in flesh. We looked at that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, the the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's been God's desire, as we looked at in Sunday school, all the way from Genesis, all the way to the return of Christ, has been for God's desire to dwell with His people. He no longer dwells in temples made by man, but now he dwells in us as born-again believers. And so that we can say, I've been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Do we live as if God lives in us? Because if we live as if God lives in us, all things are possible through Christ who strengthens us, but not for my glory, not for your glory, but rather for the glory of God. God doesn't share his glory with anybody. He will never do it. It's pure humility that John has. A godly leader will expound humility and not pride. They will not think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Because really, if anything good comes from us or any success in ministry, in life, in work, in our families, in our children... It's of God. Right? I I mean, I pray for godly, obedient children, but it ain't me who's going to make them godly and obedient. It's got to come from God because God is the one who changes heart. That doesn't negate my responsibility to effectively shepherd my home, but my dependence should always be upon the Lord. And if you think for one minute you can have your kids jump through some hoops and do A, B, C, and D, and they're going to grow up to be stout men and women of God, boy, you're sadly mistaken. Because that's not the case. We do all those things with dependent that God will change their heart and grow them into the image of God so that they may give glory to God. 
Listen, if anybody could have been tempted to be prideful, it would have been this man. I mean, who in this room can say of a woman there's never been one greater than he? Nobody. This man was told that. This was said of John. If anybody could say, I am the man, it would be John. But he doesn't. He doesn't. So we see the confrontation. A face-to-face confrontation over position. We see the clarification that John says it's about Christ, not about me, but from above, God in heaven. And lastly, we see the condemnation. So we see the confrontation, the clarification, and lastly, we see the condemnation. Now, John does a great job of transitioning, I believe, into a message of salvation. In pointing unto eternal life, But it begins with making known how the people reject the message of God. He says in verse 32, What we have seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. We've heard this all the way through the book of John so far in the first three chapters. Remember there in verse 9 of chapter 1, it says, There was true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Jesus has been rejected from day one. They rejected, and they still reject today. And if you reject the testimony of Jesus Christ, the salvation that comes from Christ, the Bible says you will be condemned. It's not a message of condemnation but a message of grace and mercy and of provision. provision. But we cannot forget the reality that there is a literal place called hell where everyone who rejects the gospel says they will be. And I would fail if I just told you the good parts and not the bad part. I don't like preaching on hell. Who, I mean, who wants to go to hell? Ain't nobody going to raise their hand this morning. I mean, even an unbeliever don't want to go to hell. Right? But if you reject his testimony, it says you will be condemned. You will not see the kingdom of God unless you are born from above. But not everyone rejected Christ. Many did, but not everyone. He says in verse 33, He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. So we see this kind of same contrast as we look at chapter 1, verse 11. When it says he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But then we see the contrast. Verse 12. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those, even to those that would believe in his name. Have you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Have you? Have you placed your faith in Christ alone? Or is it a prayer that you prayed that locked the key for you? Because I can't find anywhere in Scripture that says if you pray a prayer, you're saved. Or if you walk an aisle, you're saved. No, that's, that's fine. We can do that. And we offer that every week. But you walking that aisle has nothing to do with your salvation. Your salvation is completely dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary where he gave his life. He was pierced through for your iniquity and he nailed your sin to the cross because you're a sinner. The Bible says all of sin have fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that sin, Isaiah 59 two says, has made a separation between you and God and so many. 
man in all of his great wonders and mercy try to get back to God through good works, by reading their Bible, by going to church, by giving money to the poor, by doing da 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 when in reality, falls short of the glory of God. It's the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you receive this testimony, you claim God is true. Do you claim God to be true? Because you believe and understand that the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. And therefore, it's true. Jesus completely says and does everything that the Father says and does. And the only thing he says is what God says, and he only does what God does. That's Jesus. So we must believe that Jesus is truthful. His testimony is true. Because if we believe that Jesus is truthful, then we believe that God is also truthful. But equally, to not believe Jesus is to make God out to be a liar. For he who God has sent speaks the words of God. Verse 34. That's Christ. John, again, is appointing these people to Jesus Christ, showing that God has sent Jesus. And any more going to Christ in the right is in the right direction. He says, for he gives the Spirit without measure. John the Baptist, having witnessed the descending of the dove onto Jesus' shoulder, having heard the Father say, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, understood the Sonship of Jesus Christ and how it rested on a Trinitarian Sonship that God the Father, God the Son, and that God the Holy Spirit is present in Christ. John is shouting this. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world And I've seen and I've testified that this is the one that is the Son of God. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who disobeys the Son shall not see life, but rather the wrath of God remains on him. It's a shout of salvation, a shout of proclamation. But the ring of condemnation rings loud. For those that fail to believe. He is the final shout of John. Here it is. Verse 35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. God has made Christ Lord of all, including you this morning. He believes in the Son, has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son of God will not see life, but rather the wrath of God abides on him. You have two choices today. Believe or to reject. That's the only two options. And if you reject, the Bible says the wrath of God abides on you. It means to remain. It stays on you. It resides with you. But if you will believe in the Son of God, you will have life. He's paid for it. He's given you, he's offering you the gift of salvation. Now believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible says you will be saved. 
these things have written to you, he says in John 20, 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Believe this morning the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ and live. Listen, don't shoot for popularity. It's always a letdown. Rather shoot for Christ with a humility like John so that God can use you in extraordinary ways for His glory. Let's pray. We want to thank you for joining us on our program today. We pray that you were challenged, encouraged, and hope that you will stay connected with us for the weeks to come as Pastor Stewart walks us through the book of John. If you don't have a church home, Pastor Stewart would like to personally invite you to join their worship service at Family Bible Fellowship in Early Branch, South Carolina. They meet each week at 11 a.m. For more information about the church, visit them at familybiblefellowship.org. Thanks again for being with us and have a great week.